That's Michelle Fishburne, who knows a thing or two about pluck. In typical 2020 style, when she lost her job, her home, and some of her hearing, Michelle grabbed a video camera and jumped into her RV for the ultimate road trip. She logged thousands of miles around the country, talked with people, and gathered their stories to see how life changed for them during the pandemic. Her travels and hundreds of stories are chronicled in her project, Who We Are Now. A little later in the episode, Michelle joins Diana Place to discuss those travels and what happens when life shakes you up and turns you upside down. In the meantime, along with Diana Place and Rebecca Moore, I'm Liz Solar. Welcome to Embark on Your Third Act, sponsored by Align and Amplify, a supportive small group coaching program for women-owned businesses. Ditch the distractions. Get back on track and grow your business. More at inanutshellceo.com. So Michelle's third act story starts with sometimes life turns you upside down, dumps you on the floor Mm. and asks, what are you going to do about it? And some people might just stay on the floor. And then the people who get up, we call that resilience. And Diane, I'm going to turn this over to you because you spoke with Michelle at length, and we'll hear that in just a few moments. Tell us about what resilience means to you. You know, as I say, by the time you're on this planet for 50 plus years, you've had a few disruptions in your life. You know, some that you chose, some that you willingly created, leaving a job that didn't satisfy you to start your own or a major illness or the loss of a loved one. Those we've all experienced some number of those. And I think on reflection, that's one of what I call the gifts of our third act is that we can understand the resilience that we have exhibited. I say we can flex our resilience muscles each time. You know, when life dumps me on the floor and maybe kicks me around a little bit as, yeah, it's painful. I accept it. It's It happened. I'm not going to be what I was before or my health won't be what it was before. But we at that really painful moment, you know, I think there was a lovely quote by um, J.K. Rowling that had something to do with, you know, once she hit her life hit rock bottom, it provided her a solid foundation to rebuild. For me in my life, in the times that life has dumped me upside down and knocked me on the floor, you know, I was, I I realized the unique opportunity and the choice I had. Actually, it's interesting. There's more possibility at that moment to really reinvent your life or recreate a different version of how you live because what's before was gone is gone potentially. Mm-hmm. So, so, so to me, resilience is this beautiful muscle, we emotional muscle we build over time. Um, and, you know, I, I like to say some people who've not experienced a lot of loss or change, it's more difficult when they hit one for the first time, you know, and I'll say one more thing, but this pandemic is the first in, in, in our lifetimes, the first completely universal, you know, collective disruption to life. And I find that especially for the young people, it's, it's a gift in some ways because they will learn how strong they are because they will reinvent their lives. They will make do with the change at the risk of sounding too Pollyanna. I believe in this as an opportunity. We don't all have that level of resilience. And when 
you know, when the pandemic started, there was this meme of all in it together. We're all in the same boat. And I think the wiser people said, we're on the same storm. We have different boats. Oh, beautiful. Mm, you know, some people, yeah. some people have, you know, little dinghies. Some people have kayaks. Some people have, you know, a, a cruise ship. So we're <laughs> all weathering it with different tools. And we know in life for some people that hangnail can really ruin their day and they can't come back from it. But we know <laughs> That's this- a great example. Right? But it is, wow. and, 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 or sometimes we can go through these terrible tragedies and it is that hangnail that is the straw that broke the camel's back. It's sort of like I could, I could take everything life could throw at me, all the big stuff, and I just can't handle one more thing. And sometimes it's that little stuff. And how do you, mm. that's the day. But, but that, the long-term the, resilience, Rebecca. No, oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say that, yeah, you have those days where you do hit rock bottom. Hopefully it's not just because of hand <laughs> but I was thinking of, you know, my, what I call my minivan moment when I realized I was just having kind of a breakdown in, in my minivan, realizing that, you know, I had joined this startup for all the right reasons. And yet it, I just, it just came crashing down on me that it just, you know, it was not in alignment with what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So you can take that crushing moment and you can you can internalize it and, and suffer and suffer or you can say okay i'm going to stop this pity party and i'm going to make some changes and that's what i love about uh michelle she could have said here are all my circumstances you know i'm just going to crawl under a rock and die or i'm going to have some fun <laughs> yeah. and i am going to take this opportunity to realign my life and uh, my plan. And I'm going to uh, put some fuel on the things that I really enjoy. So that is to me so inspiring. And that's what this is all about. That's what well, the Michelle third act, you know, whatever a number act it is. It's like, how do I say it? I, I usually say it in a certain way, but it's never too late to take a fresh look at the world around us and that and and realign and that is what i believe the pandemic has done for mm. so many of us it's like wow yeah i can dwell on these awful things that have happened you know cancer deaths you know, <laughs> loss of jobs or i can really try to be the light in my family and in my sphere of influence and encourage people and do my best with with what god's given me <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I keep thinking that Michelle really is one in a million, though, because if you look at the story, if you look at the bare facts of what happens and everything seems to be, you know, like a perfect storm in life. It's not just one change. I'm not sure that that one change sparks the other or sometimes we're just really unlucky. And mm -hmm. there is yeah. this intersection of like your lease on your house expiring, your, your nest is empty, which can be quite traumatic for, mm -hmm. for many of us who have children, and then a loss of a job, particularly when you're very good at your job, mm -hmm. you know, that's a big part of your identity. So for the person to find the gratitude and there are things that I can do, I still have some stuff going for me and have those major hits all coming up at the same time in life. Yes. There's something about that that is, that's so special. I'm not sure that I could do that. So that's I have incredible <laughs> admiration. Mm -hmm. Um completely in agreement that Michelle is incredibly rare. She is actually, if not um, one of the only people that has collected so many stories across the pandemic, of course. However, what I do think is beautiful in her story 
is something that all of us have. And it's all about taking the choice, accepting her reality. She had your equivalent of your minivan moment in, in the Target parking lot, I think is what she said, where she said, my house is going away. My daughter's empty nesting. I have no job and I've sent out 80 cover letters and I can't, no one's called me back. So she, she basically, sometimes it's when everything's stripped away, when you have to face uncertainty. And one of the, it's a Faulkner quote now, I hopefully I won't botch it too much, but when I spoke to her, we talked a lot about the need to hold on to to embrace uncertainty and not let it paralyze us in fear. And it's, that's hard. Well, it's not only uncertainty. It's it's also to embrace discomfort. I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, like the the entrepreneurs that can get to the next plateau, you know, beyond that plateau where they kind of get stalled out are the ones that are, that learn to be comfortable with discomfort and uncertainty and learn how to um, really create a new reality. So really to hold on to that vision of what they're looking to create, even though they don't have all the answers, they don't, they really are just learning as they go because they've never done it before. Mm -hmm. They're creating a new identity for themselves. I am now a founder. Okay. I am doing the things, you know, I, my company, you know, I haven't built a multimillion dollar company yet, but I'm on my way. And those are the individuals that actually are able to pull it off because they're, they get super comfortable with discomfort and uncertainty and they're okay with it. To that point, Rebecca, I think Michelle says something like anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And most of us would cringe at that because I don't want to do something badly. We're so perfectionist. Oh yeah. We're so driven, results oriented. I mean, I just did this little mini series on, uh, you know, live stream and it was full of bloopers, but it's like, it's, uh, they have a term, we have a term for it failing forward. So, okay. Um, Yeah, that could have been better, but I'm just going to keep, keep going. And each time I'm going to improve. We used to have a blooper reel. Yeah. You know, for like the holiday party, like ways that you messed up and you, you know, just want to cringe. And there was a lot of, as you might say, salty language involved (laughs) in it as well. So, but it was fun. You know, everything's funny in retrospect. What is it? Um, Comedy is tragedy plus time. So we can get over these things, but we first have to be able to do them. And I see, I mean, it's scary, whatever act you're in in life, but also many young people are afraid to fail to do something badly because they feel like that's the thing that's going to color their career. That's what people are going to think about them. They're not going to look competent. Things get placed in very public marketplaces for other people to see. So it becomes, I'm afraid to say this because I don't want to look like a certain type of person or, you know, sound like a bad person, or I don't want to sound stupid. And we really, we want to take the risk out of things and the only things that are worth not just doing badly, but worth risking ourselves. Well, you know, making it's all change and, and making a change in your life, any sort of a transition can be really, it can be scary. It can be messy. It can be, you know, hard, but, you know, back to talking about being dumped on the floor, you know, it is, um, a daunting feeling in some cases. There's a quote I've got to read by Ogmandino. I will love the light for it shows me the way, yet I will endure the darkness 
for it shows me the stars. So that says to me, and that's that, that's how I feel that Michelle's story unveils itself as, and it can unveil for any of us who use the opportunity to go inside a little bit and say, okay, you know, my life got turned upside down. I'm on the floor. Like, what, who am I? What do I really want? And how do I want to reinvent this life? Absolutely. And how do I want to yeah. live this one precious life I have? These moments of tragedy and are certainly, I don't want to belittle them, but I want to also understand that the most resilient people I know and I see are those that can turn that, turn that around to be a gift in some way to, to have a perception of their lives um, shift. The other part of it too, is just this, this willingness. And I, I love that quote about anything worth doing is worth doing badly, because when you do something badly, that's your opportunity to look at it and say, gee, okay, yep. Um, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Um, you know, I was thrown under the bus. I was criticized, but that's not going to define me. That's going to teach me something. And if you can look and see, you know, I think of, you know, certain conversations I've had that didn't go well, it's like, oh, okay. You know, what was it that I was conveying that I did not intend to convey and learn from it, not be defined by it, but grow towards where you want to grow. <laughs> Rebecca, that you mentioned something earlier and you, you said it's ego. Oh, yeah. You know, your ego, like our ego. That's why no one wants to fail, because right, but, it hurts our ego and, and we're all full of ourselves. Our egos will undermine every good mm -hmm. thing that we pursue because we're not really doing, you know, we're doing it because we're doing it for someone else. We're doing it for how, how it looks and not taking those risks to to do something badly and not admitting that we don't know what we don't know. And the older I get, it's like, oh boy, there's a lot I still don't know. What I love about this conversation is, well, a lot of things, is the fact that, yeah, one of the gifts of being a bit older in our third acts is we can hopefully, in, you know, overcome those fears of not doing it well. I, I personally love being a novice at things. I didn't think, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been... I'm not good at that. So I'm not going to try it now. I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn this one. So this curiosity that I believe it, it, it expands as we get older and the willingness to say, I don't care what they think of me. I don't care well, if I'm doing this badly. I, I, it's, it's a great gift of age. One of the gifts of being older. <laughs> I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal magazine this past weekend about Amanda Gordon. Uh, and, um, it Gorman. Gorman, sorry. Um, okay. Amanda Gorman. It was called Poetry in Motion. And one of the things that really struck me, <laughs> I mean, she's only, what, 23? And she said something like, yeah, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I should be pretty good at it by now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my it. God. You know, it's like the it. confidence for a 23-year-old. And here we are, you know, <clears throat> 50 plus. And we don't want to sound conceited. So we come across sounding not confident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have so much darn experience, you know, well, we have so much to bring to the, the table. How many you know? times have you hit the floor, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, that in being, I judge myself, not necessarily by my business successes, but by my ability to pull myself up from the floor yeah. and just yeah. go for it and, yeah. and follow my heart and just believe 
in having faith in the future. I, I think it's like this fine line between being very kind to your, learning how to be kind to yourself mm. and getting shit done. You don't need a pity party. If you fall flat on your face, you know, yeah, you can like cry about it for a little while and then get over it. And what have I learned? It is paramount because we have so much to contribute and to um, to serve others. So much <laughs> is out of our control, but so much is in our control yeah, with much the way more we, than we realize. Yeah, the way we perceive it and the way we use it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we got to let go of some of the the stuff to do that, though. One of the things that Michelle is doing, and he hasn't been mentioned yet, you know, what brings us joy, mm-hmm. you know, not to bring Marie Kondo into this conversation, but, you know, what are the things that not only are of service to others, to us, but what's the thing that makes life joyful, quote unquote, worth living mm-hmm. and tapping into that? She's in an RV traversing the, you know, the country and finding the joy in being around people, meeting people from all walks of life and saying, mm-hmm. tell me about you. Mm-hmm. And having that conversation, which is an, another piece of our culture that has fallen by the wayside. What happened to conversations with people we would not ordinarily mix with? Mm-hmm. And that's part of her genius is to meet and um, expose us to these people and these people to us. And so we learned something about not just them, but about ourselves. Well, we also, hear a couple of her stories from the the conversation we had. You know, she lights up. I mean, she's a high energy human anyway, but she lights up just in the ways you mentioned, conversation and the sharing of energy with another person. So, you know, I mean, she put gas in her RV, but she kept her emotional fuel going through these, these um, conversations and, that uh, she's compiled. So Diana, we've been talking about talking around Michelle and some of our own experiences, but tell me how you happen to meet Michelle, what part she has uh, in, in what you do. That's a great question. I actually was having a conversation with a dear friend about my interest in collecting stories about uh, not necessarily just the pandemic, but about people that have shaped and are living really interesting. I call them extraordinary, but sort of ordinary in some cases, third act lives. So I said, I really want to do this series where I meet these people and I understand because I believe that the inspiration that can come from listening to them. So I was talking to my friend the next day, she sent me a link to Michelle, an article about Michelle. She had just gotten a book contract, I believe for her um, RV tour. So, you know, I reached out to her immediately. She got back to me immediately. And we've just become, you know, fun friends chatting. So she was one of the first people I contacted when I started doing my third act quest story series. And we may hear from her again. Yes, we shall. <laughs> Briefly, what would that be about? How will we run into Michelle again? Michelle is going to be one of 10 storytellers that I'm going to um, gather together at the end of October for three evenings of storytelling. They're men and women from all um, all times in their lives, from their 50s to their 80s. The thread that pulls them together is that they've either reinvented an amazing third act and or they are 
really finding a really powerful way to not only live forward as they pass 60 and beyond, but give forward in sort of ways um, they found meaning in their purpose. So Rebecca, any final thoughts about resilience, peeling yourself off the floor? <laughs> I, I know I know we all have a little experience with that. So well I guess I guess what I would say, I mean there's been so many moments when, you know, I and a lot of my clients have pe- peeled themselves off the floor. And the the beauty of that is that there's hope. <laughs> and the encouragement I just want to leave everybody with, and Michelle is such a good example, is just that you can, you can look at your circumstances in despair, or you can look at your circumstances and rise above it and create a new reality mm. of, um, what you want to do with your life. And I believe that you really can cultivate your divine purpose and monetize your brilliance no matter what age you are. Amen to that. We'll get to Diana and Michelle in just a moment. But first, you can join Diana along with 15 storytellers and experts for powerful stories of reinvention. The second annual Third Act Quest Stories Live happens online October 26th, 27th, and 28th. 15 voices, including this week's guest, Michelle Fishburne. More than a thousand years of inspiring life experience and a chance to reimagine your own life story. Click the info link for early registration through September 27th at thirdactquest.com. And we're back with Diana and Michelle. Take it away, Diana. Hi, Michelle. So nice to see you today. Hi, Diana. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for taking time from what has been an incredibly remarkable year on the road. Uh, So (laughs) I want to start off to paraphrase the name of your remarkable program, Who We Are Now. I want to ask, where are you now? (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I am back home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but my home right now is very different from what I always thought of as being home. I'm not in a house. I'm living in my motorhome. Wow. So when I was looking at your bio before we even met, and we've we've had a couple of interchanges and intersections over the last couple of months, but the thing that really struck me, and I'm going to quote the beginning of a line in your bio, sometimes life turns you upside down and sometimes it even drops you on the floor. (laughs) So let's use that as a launching off point for you to share a little bit about your story and where that's brought you over, especially the last year. Well, at the beginning of January, 2020, I had a great job. I was a national public relations director for a foundation and a nonprofit. And my job was to fly and go all over the United States, meeting with really interesting people and potential partners. And I loved it. And I had a cute little house that I adored. And my youngest was living at home with me in her senior year of high school. So at the beginning of 2020, I felt so blessed. Mm. But then I lost my job in the COVID spring. Mm. And with a law degree and an MBA background and many, many years of success, both as an international trade attorney and as a national public relations professional, I wasn't worried. I thought, oh, I'll just network my way to my next job. Mm-hmm. Well, networking is difficult in a pandemic. <laughs> Everybody uh-huh. is quarantined and mm-hmm. locked down and organizations aren't necessarily hiring. 
for somebody to do public relations. And so what ended up happening was I found myself by the middle of July had submitted 86 customized cover letters. Wow. And I had no job and not even a remote chance of getting a job, apparently. And the movers were coming in two weeks to move me out of the post-divorce house that I had been renting. Mm. And my youngest was going off to college. So on August 1st, at the age of 57, I had no job and no house and no kid to take care of anymore. So that's when life really dumped me on the ground and it kind of stomped on me a little bit too. (laughs) And you're still smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that's the thing is when you find a moment in your life that is really not comfortable and, and you're really concerned. That's a who moved my cheese moment. So that's a wonderful book that I read in the 1990s that I really didn't need to read in the 1990s, but apparently I needed to have that knowledge of it for this summer because I sat there in my car out in the Target parking lot when I had to make a decision about where my household was going to get moved to in two weeks. And I just thought, oh, somebody's moved my cheese. It's gone. And I've been sitting here thinking it's going to come back. So I don't know if you know the story about who moved my cheese. and I'll tell you it briefly. But the idea is, it's a metaphor, of course, but there are two, two mice. And every day they run through this maze and they get to the same exact place every day and they get their cheese. And they become really fast at this because they know exactly where to go. Mm-hmm. But then one day they get there and the cheese doesn't show up. And then they go back the next day and there's no cheese. And after this happens over a few days, one of the mice says, you know, I don't think this cheese is coming back. (laughs) (laughs) And so that mouse says to the other one, I'm going to go check out the rest of the maze, see if I can find some cheese. It's probably not going to be the same cheese. It'll probably be different cheese, but cheese nonetheless, I'm going. You want to come with me? The other mouse says, no, no, I'm good. I'm going to stay here. I'm sure it's coming. Right. So it's one of those moments of you, you can't just stay still. You have to get out there in the maze and find a different cheese. And so when that happened, I thought to myself, all right, I have to do something. Now, my scarcity was what I did not have Mm -hmm. was I did not have a house or a job or a kid to take care of anymore. But the abundance I had was time. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Curiosity years of skills and a motorhome. And I knew how to live in the motorhome for an extended period because I had road schooled my kids during some of the, my homeschooling years. Oh, so I love that. So we had spent 10 months driving all over the United States to our national parks and state parks. Me with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And then we did it again for four months up into Canada when they were nine and no, seven and nine. So to me, driving out to Yellowstone is like going to the grocery store. It's not a big deal. So I thought I'll just jump in the motorhome, and I'm kind of curious about how people are doing in the pandemic. I'll just go out there and start interviewing people and seeing how they're doing. I'll make a website and I'll just make my own project. Wow. And I called it who we are now because I really wasn't too sure who we were in 2020 <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Well, what's so interesting too, because I've had the opportunity to look at a few of your interviews, it's the perfect 
mindset framer for your conversations. You know, people get to really think about the changes of perception and the changes of life that are happening. I feel, I don't think we've universally had this kind of a lightning strike or shift or turning point. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to the mice though, real quickly. Uh, okay. Because sure. You're not only the mouse that said, hey, I'm going to go check it out and figure out what's around this next corner. You were a very confident mouse in some ways, but also I'm guessing the mouse that stayed behind was a little stuck by fear. You had absolutely no fear or did you? The unknown is exciting and it's crazy. So how did you feel at that moment? Well, okay. So that's an interesting question. I'm going to go back to the mice for a second. So which mouse do you think had more fear? The one that was going to stay and wait for the cheese to finally arrive or the one that was going to go through the maze? I have a struggle with that. I was thinking there should be a third mouse. You know? <laughs> no, no, Diana, stay with the metaphor. All right, I'm going I'm to cut you off. I'm going to answer this. On my way, as I've interviewed hundreds of people all over the country, one person said to me, well, you know, action is the antidote to fear. Mm. So that's a way to answer your question. For me, what I was most afraid of, yes, I could have taken the motorhome and gone to the beach and hung out at the beach and continued to submit one after another, after another, customized beautiful cover letters and resumes. I could have tried like everybody else was to consult my way to get to a next job. Mm. And that to me is what I had fear of of sitting in one place and continuing to do what I had already been doing that wasn't working. I was afraid of that. Striking out on my own and creating something new, that didn't scare me. Yeah, I hear that in you. And I see that by what you decided to do and that you (laughs) did it. I mean, what it comes down to is many people hold the trunk of the tree tightly when they're deeply afraid. You were motivated by necessity but you were also motivated by a curiosity. Anybody that takes their kids around the country, um, (laughs) what do you call it? Motorhome schooling? Is that what you called it? I don't know. Road schooling is what people call it. God, I love that. I'm envious because I I homeschooled my daughter for a year. I wish I'd jumped. jumped (laughs) So yeah. So take me back then to I think one of the things I love as we get older and we reflect on our lives and we look back, we look at the threads that came together and sort of made us who we are and all the decisions and all of the experiences we had in life, you know, some really awesome ones, really scary ones. Mm -hmm. I want to know when you were in your teens, let's say, how is your life different from what you imagined it would be when you were younger. And then flipping back, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Well, there was a part of my 18-year-old self that was very wise. And I think a lot of 18-year-olds actually have that wise part of them, but they don't recognize it. And the other part of my 18-year-old self was very mainstream and drank the Kool-Aid, if you will. My 18-year-old self said, well, I'm going to go off to a great college. I'm going to go off to a great law school. I'm going to become an international lawyer. I'm going to get involved in politics. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to travel all over the world, have an entire closet full of black tie dresses. I'll get involved in politics. Life will be grand. I'll make a lot of money. Mm, Now, but that all happened. Oh, man. Now, but the wise 18-year-old is the one who wrote 
the essay in her college application for Princeton University and took a risk. Mm. And what she said in that essay was that her goal in life, at the end of her life, that she would have collected basically, another metaphor, a big jar of marbles with all the different marbles, so many different colors and swirls in them. And they, each marble would be a life experience so that at the end of my life, I could pick a marble up and look at it and go, oh yeah, that was so amazing. And I just wanted this big, beautiful jar of experiences. That was the wise 18 year old. That's the same person who this summer said, let's go make another marble. And in fact, some of my passwords on the internet have marble in them. Oh my gosh. So what I love though, is you said, these are two sides of myself. And if you describe the personalities, you think of two different people, but your path was aligned for both. It was, although the years that I was making a lot of money being an international lawyer, Shortly after I left Washington, D.C. in those years, I started to call them the lost years because mm-hmm. I spent so much time helping corporations make more money. And I really wasn't building my marble jar. Yeah. Well, I call that fueling other people's businesses or other people's passions and not necessarily your own. I was a lot like that in the 80s as well. I think a lot of us, especially women, were faced with that conflict eventually. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about, I'm going to use another very direct analogy to the being on the road in your motorhome, but I like to say that over the course of our lives, we create and hold on to an internal GPS, just like you have your directions and your Siri or whoever's guiding you on your way to go to the Yellowstone Park or wherever you're going next for your interviews, that wise Michelle or the iterations of that inside of you, how did you find along the way, you've talked about the big decisions and the go for it attitude you had this last year, but along the way, what were the ways you calibrated your GPS when you were off course? What did you do to course correct? Or did it take you a long time to get back on track? Or did you say, hmm, I'll just go on this new road? I'm just curious about some of the decisions you've made along the way. So I originally started this project thinking it was a portfolio project meaning that I would put something together and I could say to employers, look, look what I can do. And that I would be all done by December and I'd have a job again by January. Mm -hmm. But as I was going along, people said to me, oh, is this going to be a book? And I said, oh, no, no, no. And then people started saying to me, well, these are oral histories. You're actually collecting contemporaneous oral histories like nobody else in the United States is doing right now of this incredibly historic time. Mm -hmm. and gathering people's lived experiences. What are you going to do with those audio files? What are you going to do with those transcripts? Is this a book? And I thought, oh. (laughs) So I reached out to the president of the Oral History Association on a Saturday night. And believe it or not, an hour and a half later, he emailed me back. He said, what you're doing is important. This is a book. And that was in early December. And I thought, I guess this is a book. And by that point, I had realized that I needed to continue doing this through March because I knew we were going to go through a cold and difficult winter Mm -hmm. uh, with the pandemic. So I went ahead and I talked to my parents and I said, I think I got to keep doing this through March. Then over Christmas, everybody told me it's a book. 
So I sent an email <laughs> over Christmas to UNC Press, which is the hometown team. Mm-hmm. And they got back to me and they say, we think it's a book. And so now I have a book contract. Oh, that's fantastic. And UNC Press is going to be publishing it in 2022. And what's really exciting also is that it's going to be a collaboration with the Duke Center for Documentary Studies. So I have two editors, one at UNC and one at Duke, and I've got a book. (laughs) So let me know, how many people did you speak with in this period of time? About 300. I think of that as being a small number, but when you add up the 12,000 miles that I was spending driving my motorhome all over the place and the research I had to do, because the people I interviewed weren't really random. I was trying to put together a mosaic of the American experience, mayors and doctors and teachers and yoga instructors, people who helped with addiction counseling, uh, museum educators. The idea was a mosaic and it took time as I was traveling along. I mean, imagine you're about to go into a town with maybe 2000 people and you want to interview a couple of people. You just can't show up on a corner and say, I want to interview you. Although, of course, that's what John Steinbeck did in 1960. Wow. So, so John Steinbeck was, was wondering who we are now. Back in 1960, he put together a camper. He took his dog, Charlie, like I took my dog, Buddy. He went 10,000 miles. But there was a really big deal. There were several differences, obviously. I'm not a famous author. But uh, on top of that, he wasn't traveling during a pandemic. So he could go to a bar. He could go to a restaurant. He could go to some people hanging out late into the evening to get a sense of the people. But I would go into towns and, you know, there was nobody around. All the sidewalks were rolled up. How did you arrange it? <laughs> you did research or you, how did you arrange these? I mean, three, how many days to do 300 interviews? I don't know. And then when you do the interviews, it, then you look at the transcript. It needs transcript to go from a transcript to a story using their words and honoring their story. Each of those takes about four, sometimes five, six hours for a 30 or 40 minute interview. Maybe I'm slow, but I'm just trying to honor each person. So the way I mostly found people was through Facebook. So oh. if I, <laughs> so well, John, example, didn't, John Steinbeck didn't have technology. So at least you had that. You were having, I know that, but yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had bars. I had Facebook. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I was struck by all the interviews I listened to were authentic sharing of really heartfelt experiences and people were able to be vulnerable about their fears and their losses and all sorts of things. But also I think people were so generous with their spirit and their optimism. So I cannot wait to read this, but tell me, you know, are there a couple of stories that pop out to you that were either the most inspiring or the most surprising? So I'm going to tell you a couple of the stories that are currently on the website. There are about over a hundred on the website. So one of my favorites is Nate Thomas, and he is known as the Arkansas running man. So what happened is Nate's from Forest City, Arkansas. And when the town got together to talk about the virus was coming and quarantining and lockdowning, he said, I just got it in my heart that I wanted to do something for people. And he is a veteran and he loves the American flag and he, and he runs a gym. And so he thought, I'll just run all over the state of Arkansas with old glory to tell people 
stay strong. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And so Nate ran all over the state of Arkansas for months. I mean, he wouldn't do it continuously. Like he'd run, they'd come home, they'd go run. I loved his story. So that was a surprising one. That's remarkable. I love these beautiful humans doing beautiful things stories. It's just phenomenal. Well, now you've set, now you've set me up to tell you another beautiful one, but I'm going to tell you a silly one instead. Okay. Um, <laughs> so then I was using Facebook because I was going up north from Florida, up north, and I was going to go through Georgia. And I saw that in Valdosta, Georgia, Caleb Dixon had opened an axe throwing business. Oh my gosh. So he started as a regressions <laughs> out. <laughs> he started wow. as a mobile business in the oh spring. My. It was just an overnight success. And he said, I gotta tell you, we had a lot of moms this summer. <laughs> and, and then he also told me, you know, I don't know if it that moms just have that much more frustration and rage. <laughs> or if they're, or if they're better listeners, but they are much better axe throwers than men are. Ooh. Yeah. So it was kind of, it was, he said, you know, it was a great way. He said, I put an X on that piece of plywood and all that frustration and anger and energy you've been keeping pent up, just throw that X and throw it right at that X. Wow. So all these folks, and I think that's one of the things that I'm sure you internalize and think about almost every day is that despite the pain and suffering that we've all been through, this has been a beautiful reckoning with what's important in our lives and important to us. If you hear that loud and clear, I would assume. I, I do. And, and when people ask me what I've seen, I think the most authentic answer is pluck. P-L-U-C-K. It's an old fashioned word. It means spirited and determined courage. The image that first comes to mind when I say that word are the people standing on their balconies in Italy, banging plates or singing. I mean, some of the singers were amazing and musicians, but pluck. Now, I've seen pluck even with people who were deniers and got a loved one sick and that loved one died. I've seen pluck from people who have lost a grown child. I've seen pluck from people who have lost their businesses, spirited and determined courage. And I think that is one of the things that makes us human. And, and, and I don't think it's a recent trait. Think about thousands and thousands of years ago when we were living in caves and let's say some a predator came in and wiped out half of your clan. We just got up the next day and we're like, okay, we got to feed ourselves. We got to keep ourselves safe. Maybe we should move on. It's pluck. It's what has kept us going as a species. And we did it again. Well, it's back to you. It's like, you're against the wall. What do you do? Right. I think also most of the people that will be listening to this story are people who are looking toward the third act of their lives and trying to envision how they're going to live it. And so many are feeling or potentially feeling stuck. I think these stories will be your stories and the story you're telling will be so, so helpful. You have received many gifts in your life and you (laughs) are definitely giving them back and giving them out to the world in this project, especially um, to your family, clearly. But um, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And I cannot wait to read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.
Many thanks to Michelle Fishburne for joining us this third Thursday of the month for Embark on Your Third Act, sponsored by Align and Amplify, a supportive small group coaching program for women-owned businesses. Ditch the distractions, get back on track, and take action to grow your business. Apply today at inanutshellceo.com. Please share this episode with a friend and subscribe. We welcome your feedback and ideas at Liz at EmbarkThePodcast.com. Next week, we'll talk to John Madelman. He's a social worker who works with tweens, teens, and their parents. And we're going to talk about those disturbing but not surprising results of an internal Facebook study on how social media affects our kids. It's not good. In the meantime, I'm going to try to recover from this laryngitis and cold, and I thank you for listening.